Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight, I read two short stories by Virginia Woolf. The Mark on the Wall and Kew Gardens. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. The Mark on the Wall Perhaps it was the middle of January in the present year that I first looked up and saw the mark on the wall. In order to fix a date, it is necessary to remember what one saw. So now I think of the fire, the steady film of yellow light upon the page of my book, the three chrysanthemums in the round glass bowl on the mantelpiece. Yes, it must have been the winter time, and we had just finished our tea, for I remember that I was smoking a cigarette when I looked up and saw the mark on the wall for the first time. I looked up through the smoke of my cigarette, and my eye lodged for a moment upon the burning coals, and that old fancy of the crimson flag flapping from the castle tower came into my mind, and I thought of a cavalcade of red knights riding up the side of the black rock. Rather to my relief, the sight of the mark interrupted the fancy, for it is an old fancy, an automatic fancy, made as a child perhaps. The mark was a small, round mark, 
black upon the white wall, about six or seven inches above the mantelpiece. How readily our thoughts swarm upon a new object, lifting it a little way as ants carry a blade of straw so feverishly and then leave it. If that mark was made by a nail, it can't have been for a picture. It must have been for a miniature, the miniature of a lady with white powdered curls, powder-dusted cheeks and lips like red carnations. A fraud, of course, for the people who had this house before us would have chosen pictures in that way. An old picture for an old room. That is the sort of people they were. Very interesting people. And I think of them so often in such strange places. Because one will never see them again. Never know what happened next. They wanted to leave this house because they wanted to change their style of furniture, so he said. And he was in process of saying that, in his opinion, art should have ideas behind it when we are torn asunder, as one is torn from the old lady about to pour out tea, and the young man about to hit the tennis ball in the back garden of the suburban villa, as one rushes past in the train. But as for that mark, I'm not sure about it. I don't believe it was made by a nail after all. It's too big, too round for that. I might get up, but if I got up and looked at it, Ten to one I shouldn't be able to say for certain, because once a thing's done, no one ever knows how it happened. Oh dear me, the mystery of life, the inaccuracy of thought, the ignorance of humanity. To show how very little control of our possessions we have, what an accidental affair this living is after all our civilization. Let me just count over a few of the things lost in one lifetime, beginning for that seems always the most mysterious of losses. What cat would gnaw? What rat would nibble? Three pale blue canisters of book-binding tools. Then there were the bird cages, the iron hoops, the steel skates, the Queen Anne coal scuttle, the bagatelle board, the hand organ, all gone, and jewels too. Opals and emeralds, they lie about the roots of turnips. What a scraping, paring affair it is, to be sure. The wonder is that I've got any clothes on my back, that I sit surrounded by solid furniture at this moment. Why, if one wants to compare life to anything, one must liken it to being blown through the tube at 50 miles an hour, landing at the other end without a single hairpin in one's hair, shot out at the feet of God, entirely naked, tumbling head over heels in the asphodel meadows like brown paper parcels pitched down a chute in the post office, with one's hair flying back like the tail of a racehorse. Yes, that seems to express the rapidity of life, the perpetual waste and repair, also casual, also haphazard. But after life, the slow pulling down of thick green stalks so that the cup of the flower as it turns over, deluges one with purple and red light. Why, after all, should one not be born there as one is born here, helpless, speechless, unable to focus one's eyesight, groping at the roots of the grass, at the toes of the giants? As for saying which are trees and which are men and women, or whether there are such things, 
that one won't be in a condition to do for fifty years or so. There will be nothing but spaces of light and dark, intersected by thick stalks, and rather higher up, perhaps, rose-shaped blots of an indistinct color, dim pinks and blues, which will, as time goes on, become more definite, become I don't know what. And yet, that mark on the wall is not a hole at all. It may even be caused by some round black substance, such as a small rose leaf left over from the summer. And I, not being a very vigilant housekeeper, look at the dust on the mantelpiece, for example, the dust which, so they say, buried Troy three times over, only fragments of pots utterly refusing annihilation, as one can believe. The tree outside the window taps very gently on the pane. I want to think quietly, calmly, spaciously, never to be interrupted, never to have to rise from my chair to slip easily from one thing to another without any sense of hostility or obstacle. I want to sink deeper and deeper, away from the surface with its hard, separate facts. To steady myself, let me catch hold of the first idea that passes. Shakespeare. Well, he will do as well as another. A man who sat himself solidly in an armchair and looked into the fire so... A shower of ideas fell perpetually from some very high heaven down through his mind. He leaned his forehead on his hand, and people, looking in through the open door, for this scene is supposed to take place on a summer's evening. But how dull this is, this historical fiction. It doesn't interest me at all. I wish I could hit upon a pleasant track of thought. A track indirectly reflecting credit upon myself, for those are the pleasantest thoughts, and very frequent even in the minds of modest mouse-colored people, who believe genuinely that they dislike to hear their own praises. They are not thoughts directly praising oneself, that is the beauty of them. They are thoughts like this. And when I came into the room, they were discussing botany. I said how I'd seen a flower growing on a dust heap on the site of an old house in Kingsway. The seed, I said, must have been sown in the reign of Charles I. What flowers grew in the reign of Charles I? I asked, but I don't remember the answer. Tall flowers with purple tassels to them, perhaps. And so it goes on. All the time I'm dressing up the figure of myself in my own mind, lovingly, stealthily, not openly adoring it, for if I did that I should catch myself out and stretch my hand at once for a book in self-protection. Indeed, it is curious how instinctively one protects the image of oneself from idolatry or any other handling that could make it ridiculous or too unlike the original to be believed in any longer. Or is it not so very curious, after all? It is a matter of great importance. Suppose the looking-glass smashes, the image disappears, and the romantic figure with the green of forest depths all about it is there no longer, but only that shell of a person which is seen by other people. What an airless, shallow, bald, prominent world it becomes, a world not to be lived in. As we face each other in omnibuses and underground railways, we are looking into the mirror. That accounts for the vagueness, 
the gleam of glassiness in our eyes. And the novelists in future will realize more and more the importance of these reflections. For of course, there is not one reflection, but an almost infinite number. Those are the depths they will explore. Those the phantoms they will pursue. Leaving the description of reality more and more out of their stories. Taking a knowledge of it for granted, as the Greeks did, and Shakespeare perhaps. But these generalizations are very worthless. The military sound of the word is enough. It recalls leading articles, cabinet ministers, a whole class of things indeed, which as a child one thought the thing itself, the standard thing, the real thing, from which one could depart, save at the risk of nameless damnation. Generalizations bring back somehow Sunday in London, Sunday afternoon walks, Sunday luncheons, and also ways of speaking of the dead, clothes and habits, like the habit of sitting all together in one room until a certain hour, although nobody liked it. There was a rule for everything. The rule for tablecloths at that particular period was that they should be made of tapestry with little yellow compartments marked upon them, such as you may see in photographs of the carpets in the corridors of the royal palaces. Tablecloths of a different kind were not real tablecloths. How shocking. And yet how wonderful it was to discover that these real things, Sunday luncheons, Sunday walks, country houses and tablecloths, were not entirely real, or indeed half phantoms, and the damnation which visited the disbeliever in them was only a sense of illegitimate freedom. What now takes the place of those things, I wonder? Those real, standard things? Men, perhaps, should you be a woman? The masculine point of view which governs our lives, which sets the standard, which establishes Whitaker's table of precedency, which has become, I suppose, since the war, half a phantom to many men and women, which soon, one may hope, will be laughed into the dustbin where the phantoms go the mahogany sideboards and the Landseer prince, gods and devils, hell and so forth, leaving us all with an intoxicating sense of illegitimate freedom, if freedom exists. In certain lights, that mark on the wall seems actually to project from the wall, nor is it entirely circular. I cannot be sure, but it seems to cast a perceptible shadow suggesting that if I ran my finger down that strip of the wall, it would, at a certain point, mount and descend a small tumulus, a smooth tumulus, like those barrows on the South Downs, which are, they say, either tombs or camps. Of the two, I should prefer them to be tombs, desiring melancholy like most English people, and finding it natural at the end of a walk to think of the bone stretched beneath the turf. There must be some book about it. Some antiquary must have dug up those bones and given them a name. What sort of man is an antiquary, I wonder? Retired colonels, for the most part, I dare say, leading parties of aged laborers to the top here, examining clods of earth and stone, and getting into correspondence with the neighboring clergy, which being opened at breakfast time gives them a feeling of importance and the comparison of arrowheads necessitates cross-country journeys to the county towns, an agreeable necessity both to them and to their elderly wives who wish to make plum jam or to clean out the study 
and have every reason for keeping that great question of the camp or tomb in perpetual suspension, while the colonel himself feels agreeably philosophic and accumulating evidence on both sides of the question. It is true that he does finally incline to believe in the camp, and being opposed, indicts a pamphlet which he is about to read at the quarterly meeting of the local society when a stroke lays him low, and his last conscious thoughts are not of wife or child, but of the camp, that arrowhead there, which is now in the case at the local museum, together with the foot of a Chinese murderess, a handful of Elizabethan nails, a great many Tudor clay pipes, a piece of Roman pottery, and the wine glass that Nelson drank out of, proving I really don't know what. Now, nothing is proved, nothing is known, and if I were to get up this very moment and ascertain that the mark on the wall is really, what shall we say, the head of a gigantic old nail driven in 200 years ago, which has now, owing to the patient attrition of many generations of housemaids, revealed its head above the coat of paint and has taken its first view of modern life in the sight of a white-walled firelit room. What should I gain? Knowledge? Matter for further speculation? I can think, sitting still as well as standing up. And what is knowledge? What are our learned men, save the descendants of witches and hermits, who crouched in caves and in woods, brewing herbs, interrogating shrew mice, and writing down the language of the stars? And the less we honor them as our superstitions dwindle, and our respect for beauty and health of mind increases. Yes, one could imagine a very pleasant world, a quiet, spacious world, with the flowers so red and blue in the open fields, a world without professors or specialists or housekeepers with the profiles of policemen, a world which one could slice with one's thoughts, as a fish slices the water with his fin, grazing the stems of the water lilies, hanging suspended over a nest of white sea eggs. How peaceful it is down here, rooted in the center of the world and gazing up through the gray waters with their sudden gleams of light and their reflections. If it were not for Whitaker's almanac, if it were not for the table of precedency, I must jump up and see for myself what that mark on the wall really is. A nail, a rose leaf, a crack in the wood. Here is nature once more at her old game of self-preservation. This train of thought she perceives is threatening mere waste of energy, even some collision with reality. For who will ever be able to lift a finger against Whitaker's table of presidency? The Archbishop of Canterbury is followed by the Lord High Chancellor. The Lord High Chancellor is followed by the Archbishop of York. Everybody follows somebody. Such is the philosophy of Whitaker. And the great thing is to know who follows whom. Whitaker knows, and let that, so nature counsels, comfort you, instead of enraging you. And if you can't be comforted, if you must shatter this hour of peace, think of the mark on the wall. I understand nature's game, her prompting to take action as a way of ending any thought that threatens to excite or to pain. Hence, I suppose, sometimes our slight contempt for men of action, men we assume who don't think. Still, there's no harm in putting a full stop to one's disagreeable thoughts 
by looking at the mark on the wall. Indeed, now that I have fixed my eyes upon it, I feel that I have grasped a plank in the sea. I feel a satisfying sense of reality which at once turns the two archbishops and the Lord High Chancellor to the shadows of shades. Here is something definite, something real. Thus, waking from a midnight dream of horror, one hastily turns on the light and lies quiescent, worshipping the chest of drawers, worshipping solidity, worshipping reality, worshipping the impersonal world which is a proof of some existence other than ours. That is what one wants to be sure of. Wood is a pleasant thing to think about. It comes from a tree, and trees grow, and we don't know how they grow. For years and years they grow without paying any attention to us, in meadows and forests and by the side of rivers. All things one likes to think about. The cows swish their tails beneath them on hot afternoons. They paint rivers so green that when a moorhen dives, one expects to see its feathers all green when it comes up again. I like to think of the fish balanced against the stream like flags blown out, and of water beetles slowly raising domes of mud upon the bed of the river. I like to think of the tree itself, first the close dry sensation of being wood, then the grinding of the storm, then the slow delicious ooze of sap. I like to think of it too on winter's nights, standing in the empty field with all leaves close furled, nothing tender exposed to the iron bullets of the moon, a naked mast upon an earth that goes tumbling, tumbling, all night long. The song of birds must sound very loud and strange in June, and how cold the feet of insects must feel upon it as they make laborious progresses up the creases of the bark, or sun themselves upon the thin green awning of the leaves, and look straight in front of them with diamond-cut red eyes. One by one, the fibers snap beneath the immense cold pressure of the earth. Then the last storm comes, and falling, the highest branches drive deep into the ground again. Even so, life isn't done with. There are a million patient, watchful lives still for a tree, all over the world, in bedrooms and ships, on the pavement, lining rooms where men and women sit after tea, smoking cigarettes. It is full of peaceful thoughts, happy thoughts, this tree. I should like to take each one separately, but something is getting in the way. Where was I? What has it been about? A tree? A river? The Downs, Whitaker's Almanac, the fields of Asphodel? I can't remember a thing. Everything's moving, falling, slipping, vanishing. There's a vast upheaval of matter. Someone is standing over me and saying, I'm going out to buy a newspaper. Yes? Though it's no good buying newspapers, nothing ever happens. Curse this war. Goddamn this war. All the same, I don't see why we should have a snail on our wall. Ah, the mark on the wall. It was a snail. Kew Gardens From the oval-shaped flower bed, there rose perhaps a hundred stalks spreading into heart-shaped or tongue-shaped leaves, halfway up and unfurling. At the tip, red or blue or yellow petals, 
marked with spots of color raised upon the surface. And from the red, blue, or yellow gloom of the throat emerged a straight bar, rough with gold dust and slightly clubbed at the end. The petals were voluminous enough to be stirred by the summer breeze. And when they moved, the red, blue, and yellow lights passed one over the other, staining an inch of the brown earth beneath with a spot of the most intricate color. The light fell either upon the smooth gray back of a pebble or the shell of a snail with its brown circular veins, or, falling into a raindrop, it expanded with such intensity of red, blue, and yellow, the thin walls of water, that one expected them to burst and disappear. Instead, the drop was left in a second silver-gray once more, and the light now settled upon the flesh of a leaf, revealing the branching thread of fiber beneath the surface. And again it moved on, and spread its illumination in the vast green spaces beneath the dome of the heart-shaped and tongue-shaped leaves. Then the breeze stirred rather more briskly overhead, and the color was flashed into the air above, into the eyes of the men and women who walked in Kew Gardens in July. The figures of these men and women straggled past the flower bed with a curiously irregular movement, not unlike that of the blue and white butterflies, who crossed the turf in zigzag flights from bed to bed. The man was about six inches in front of the woman, strolling carelessly, while she bore on with greater purpose, only turning her head now and then to see that the children were not far behind. The man kept this distance in front of the woman, purposely, though perhaps unconsciously, for he wished to go on with his thoughts. Fifteen years ago I came here with Lily, he thought. We sat somewhere over there by a lake, and I begged her to marry me all through the hot afternoon. How the dragonfly kept circling around us. How clearly I see the dragonfly and her shoe with a square silver buckle at the toe. All the time I spoke, I saw her shoe, and when it moved impatiently, I knew without looking up what she was going to say. The whole of her seemed to be in her shoe. And my love, my desire, were in the dragonfly. For some reason I thought that if it settled there, on that leaf, the broad one with the red flower in the middle of it, if the dragonfly settled on the leaf, she would say yes at once. But the dragonfly went round and round, and never settled anywhere. Of course not. Happily not. Or I shouldn't be walking here with Eleanor and the children. Tell me, Eleanor. Do you ever think of the past? Why do you ask, Simon? Because I've been thinking of the past. I've been thinking of Lily, the woman I might have married. Well, why are you silent? Do you mind my thinking of the past? Why should I mind, Simon? Doesn't one always think of the past in a garden with men and women lying under the trees? Aren't they one's past, all that remains of it? Those men and women those ghosts lying under the trees, one's happiness, one's reality. For me, a square silver shoe buckle and a dragonfly. For me, a kiss. Imagine six little girls sitting before their easels 20 years ago, down by the side of a lake, painting the water lilies, 
the first red water lilies I'd ever seen. And suddenly, a kiss there on the back of my neck, and my hand shook all the afternoon so that I couldn't paint. I took out my watch and marked the hour when I would allow myself to think of the kiss for five minutes only. It was so precious. The kiss of an old grey-haired woman with a wart on her nose. The mother of all my kisses all my life. Come, Caroline. Come, Hubert. They walked on past the flower bed, now walking four abreast, and soon diminished in size among the trees, and looked half transparent as the sunlight and shade swam over their backs in large, trembling, irregular patches. In the oval flower bed, the snail, whose shell had been stained red, blue, and yellow for the space of two minutes or so, now appeared to be moving very slightly in its shell, and next began to labor over the crumbs of loose earth which broke away and rolled down as it passed over them. It appeared to have a definite goal in front of it, differing in this respect from the singular, high-stepping, angular green insect who attempted to cross in front of it, and waited for a second with its antennae trembling as if in deliberation, and then stepped off as rapidly and strangely in the opposite direction. Brown cliffs with deep green lakes in the hollows, flat, blade-like trees that waved from root to tip, round boulders of grain stone, vast crumpled surfaces of a thin crackling texture. All these objects lay across the snail's progress between one stalk and another to his goal. Before he had decided whether to circumvent the arched tent of a dead leaf or to breast it there, came past the bed the feet of other human beings. This time, they were both men. The younger of the two wore an expression of perhaps unnatural calm. He raised his eyes and fixed them very steadily in front of him while his companion spoke. And directly his companion had done speaking, he looked on the ground again and sometimes opened his lips only for a long pause and sometimes he did not open them at all. The elder man had a curiously uneven and shaky method of walking jerking his hand forward and throwing up his head abruptly, rather in the manner of an impatient carriage horse tired of waiting outside a house. But in the man, these gestures were irresolute and pointless. He talked almost incessantly. He smiled to himself and again began to talk, as if the smile had been an answer. He was talking about spirits, the spirits of the dead who according to him were even now telling him all sorts of odd things about their experiences in heaven. Heaven was known to the ancients as Thessaly, William, and now, with this war, the spirit matter is rolling between the hills like thunder. He paused, seemed to listen, smiled, jerked his head and continued. You have a small electric battery and a piece of rubber to insulate the wire. Isolate? Insulate? Well, we'll skip the details. No good going into details that won't be understood. And in short, the little machine stands in any convenient position by the head of the bed. We will say, on a neat mahogany stand. All arrangements being properly fixed by workmen under my direction. The widow applies her ear and summons the spirit by sign as agreed. Women. Widows. Women in black. Here he seemed to have caught sight of a woman's address in the distance, 
which in the shade looked a purple-black. He took off his hat, placed his hand upon his heart, and hurried towards her, muttering and gesticulating feverishly. But William caught him by the sleeve and touched a flower with the tip of his walking stick in order to divert the old man's attention. After looking at it for a moment in some confusion, the old man bent his ear to it and seemed to answer a voice speaking from it, for he began talking about the forests of Uruguay which he had visited hundreds of years ago in company with the most beautiful young woman in Europe. He could be heard murmuring about forests of Uruguay, blanketed with the wax petals of tropical roses, nightingales, sea beaches, mermaids, and women drowned at sea, as if he suffered himself to be moved on by a William, upon whose face the look of stoical patience grew slowly deeper and deeper. Following his steps so closely as to be slightly puzzled by his gestures came two elderly women of the lower middle class, one stout and ponderous, the other rosy-cheeked and nimble. Like most people of their station, they were frankly fascinated by any signs of eccentricity betoking a disordered brain, especially in the well-to-do. But they were too far off to be certain whether the gestures were merely eccentric or genuinely mad. After they had scrutinized the old man's back in silence for a moment and given each other a strange, sly look, they went on energetically piecing together their very complicated dialogue. Nell, Bert, Lot, Cess, Phil, Pa, he says, I says, she says, I says, I says, my Bert, sis, Bill, Grandad, the old man, sugar, sugar flower kippers greens, sugar, sugar, sugar. The ponderous woman looked through the pattern of falling words at the flowers standing cool, firm, and upright in the earth with a curious expression. She saw them as a sleeper waking from a heavy sleep sees a brass candlestick reflecting the light in an unfamiliar way and closes his eyes and opens them and seeing the brass candlestick again finally starts, broad awake, and stares at the candlestick with all his powers. So the heavy woman came to a standstill opposite the oval-shaped flower bed and ceased even to pretend to listen to what the other woman was saying. She stood there, letting the words fall over her, swaying the top part of her body slowly, backwards and forwards, looking at the flowers. Then she suggested that they should find a seat and have their tea. The snail had now considered every possible method of reaching his goal without going round the dead leaf or climbing over it. Let alone the effort needed for climbing a leaf, he was doubtful whether the thin texture which vibrated with such an alarming crackle when touched, even by the tip of his horns, would bear his weight. And this determined him finally to creep beneath it, for there was a point where the leaf curved high enough from the ground to admit him. He had just inserted his head in the opening and was taking stock of the high brown roof and was getting used to the cool brown light when two other people came past, outside on the turf. This time, they were both young, a young man and a young woman. They were both in the prime of youth, or even in that season which precedes the prime of youth, the season before the smooth pink folds of the flower have burst their gummy case, when the wings of the butterfly, though fully grown, are motionless in the sun. 
Lucky it isn't Friday, he observed. Why? Do you believe in luck? They make you pay sixpence on Friday. What's sixpence anyway? Isn't it worth sixpence? What's it? What do you mean by it? Oh, anything. I mean... You know what I mean. Long pauses came between each of these remarks. They were uttered in toneless and monotonous voices. The couple stood still on the edge of the flower bed and together pressed the end of her parasol deep down into the soft earth. The action and the fact that his hand rested on the top of hers expressed their feelings in a strange way, as these short, insignificant words also expressed something. Words with short wings for their heavy body of meaning, inadequate to carry them far, and thus alighting awkwardly upon the very common objects that surrounded them, and were, to their inexperienced touch, so massive. But who knows? So they thought, as they pressed the parasol into the earth, what precipices aren't concealed in them, or what slopes of ice don't shine in the sun on the other side? Who knows? Who has ever seen this before? Even when she wondered what sort of tea they gave you at Kew, he felt that something loomed up behind her words and stood vast and solid behind them, and the mist very slowly rose and uncovered. Oh heavens, what were those shapes? Little white tables, and waitresses who looked first at her and then at him, and there was a bill that he would pay with a real two-shelling piece and it was real, all real, he assured himself, fingering the coin in his pocket, real to everyone except to him and to her. Even to him it began to seem real. And then... But it was too exciting to stand and think any longer, and he pulled the parasol out of the earth with a jerk, and was impatient to find the place where one had tea with other people, like other people. Come on, Trissy, it's time we had our tea. Wherever does one have one's tea, she asked, with the oddest thrill of excitement in her voice, looking vaguely round and letting herself be drawn on down the grass path, trailing her parasol, turning her head this way and that, forgetting her tea, wishing to go down there and then down there, remembering orchids and cranes among wild flowers, a pagoda and a crimson-crested bird. But he bore her on. Thus one couple after another, with much the same irregular and aimless movement, passed the flower bed and were enveloped in layer after layer of green-blue vapor, in which at first their bodies had substance and a dash of color, but later both substance and color dissolved in the green-blue atmosphere. How hot it was, so hot that even the thrush chose to hop like a mechanical bird in the shadow of the flowers the long pauses between one movement and the next, instead of rambling vaguely, the white butterflies danced one above another, making with their white shifting flakes the outline of a shattered marble column above the tallest flowers. The glass roofs of the palm house shone as if a whole market full of shiny green umbrellas had opened in the sun, and in the drone of the airplane, the voice of the summer sky murmured its fierce soul yellow and black, pink and snow white, shapes of all these colors. Men, women and children were spotted for a second upon the horizon. And then, 
seeing the breadth of yellow that lay upon the grass, they wavered and sought shade beneath the trees, dissolving like drops of water in the yellow and green atmosphere, staining it faintly with red and blue. It seemed as if all gross and heavy bodies had sunk down in the heat, motionless, and lay huddles upon the ground. But their voices went wavering from them as if they were flames lolling from the thick waxen bodies of candles. Voices. Yes, voices. Wordless voices, breaking the silence suddenly with such depth of contentment, such passion of desire, or in the voices of children, such freshness of surprise, breaking the silence. But there was no silence. All the time the motor omnibuses were turning their wheels and changing their gear, like a vast nest of boxes all of wrought steel, turning ceaselessly one within another. The city murmured. On the top of which, the voices cried aloud, and the petals of myriads of flowers flashed their colors into the air. Good night. <laughs>